All right, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to quarantine sermon number three. <laughs> um, uh, the last couple of days, I've been experiencing pretty bad symptoms. All the um, all the tests I've had so far are negative, um, but it's only been a couple of days. And so uh, my doctor told me I've got to stay home for at least a couple more days and see if it's if I'm actually experiencing what so many of us already have, or um, if it's just a common you know, version of the flu. So anyway, um, I continue to be thankful for. The technology that we have so I could be blessed by the just the gathering together and singing these songs of worship to our Heavenly Father and uh, just for us to be able to hear God's word together um, even though I can't be there this morning in person. Um, I'm praying that my my voice holds out without too much coughing. I promise you I feel better than I sound. I'm sure I sound terrible right now um, but I do feel a little bit better today and so um even though, uh, you know, I've given up on saying I hope this is the last time that I preach from my desk. Uh, I'm just excited that we can be able to worship our God together regardless of location. And the, just the amazing blessing of all the things we've learned um, from how to gather together uh, in spite of just very uh, different circumstances for many of us. So uh, all that to say... Um, we have been in a series uh, called God Puts the Lonely in Homes, or according to the NIV here um, in Psalm 68, it says God sets the lonely in families. And if you've been with us, we have been looking at, um, let's see, do I have this on the next slide? Yes. Um, at the very start of our series, what Daniel mentioned to us is that we're going to take a look at two ways that this verse in Psalm 68, um, that God sets the lonely in families, that it's true. The first way is that God brings us into the home of himself. And the second way that we're going to look at is how God brings us into a new community of believers. We are still on number one. We've been on number one for many weeks. And the reason for that is we've wanted to see, we've wanted to take a really in-depth look at how God has brought us into the new home of himself. We've seen how he has adopted us as sons. And we've talked about the relationship that we can have with him. God, our father the one who initiates everything, the creator of the world, who loves us at our worst, that there's nothing that we can do that um, will separate us from him and orchestrates the plan of sending his son Jesus into this world so that we would have a savior who has given his life for us, who empathizes with us. And finally, last week, we saw how the Holy Spirit reminds us of who we are um, and guides us moment by moment and day by day. And so um, because... All of these, I think because all of these past messages about our relationship with God, we talk about a relationship with God often. We have been we have been lost in the abstract and theological world of what it means to have a relationship with God. If you take Romans 8, for example, the verses that Daniel preached on last week, how we have this um, we have this assurance that we have been adopted as sons. Romans, particularly chapters four through eight, is what we would say is an abstract. It's like a third person. It's just like a, viewing it from a lens of um, like outside of ourselves, maybe. Like, what does it look like when we become a believer, when, um, when we experience the love of God and how that changes us? Romans four through eight is kind of the perfect yet very wordy and very deep description of that. And the challenge of being lost in the abstract, I think, is many times we might think, okay, 
if this series is about us uh, experiencing how God meets us in our loneliness, then what does it look like? Um, and beyond just the abstract of it, but what does it look like for us day by day? And hopefully we've tried to give some examples along the way. But as we were preparing for this sermon this week, as I met with Daniel and, and his dad, as we, as we always do, um, I asked them, I said, what are some verses that we can think of um, where we see a character in the Bible experience all these things we've been talking about, that God meets us in our loneliness, that he invites us to have a relationship with himself? And I promise you, this was their idea for me to preach on this passage because I recently preached on this passage uh, New Year's or around New Year's of this year. So I'm breaking, a, I'm breaking a bit of a preaching rule to preach on the same passage in the same place um, within a six-month period. Um, but I'm actually really grateful that uh, we settled on this passage for today. It's a passage that I have been reading over with Auntie Rosa and Auntie Sue in a weekly Bible study I do with them. Um, we have been lost in John chapter four for a long, more than a month now. And that's because it's an amazing passage. And I think it's a really amazing example of what it means that God sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonely in homes. And if we're looking at the two ways that God does this, we will actually see both of these ways on display in the, in the passage in John chapter four. So for this week, we want to look at how God brings the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, how God brings her into a relationship with him. And then next week, we're going to look at what that does to change her relationships with others. And hopefully that's a way that it starts to transition us from the first way um, that God brings us into a home of himself and to see how we get to experience this amazing blessing of being a part of a new community of believers. But this is a really fantastic passage to see how all of the abstract things we've been talking about when it comes to a relationship with God are on full display. And so um, let's go right into this passage. Normally, I give you three points and I say, okay, this is what's to what you're going to watch out for. Um, today, we're going to read through it and then I'm going to call attention to three things that we see in the passage as we go. Um, but let's start uh, in John chapter 4. Now, context-wise, I often ask in youth group or in other youth settings, um, those of you who are graduates of uh, Bret Hart Campus Life many years ago, um, we would often say the trivia question is, what's the most famous verse in the Bible? And it's John 3.16, right? That's why I ended up preaching on this passage back in January, because Daniel wanted to preach on John 3.16 at Christmas, which is a really awesome time for it. And so, that, is, that comes in the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a teacher of God's people who sees Jesus coming on the scene and doing all these miraculous things, wants to, know, wants to ask him some questions. And Nicodemus, in the same way as we're going to see um, as the woman here in this chapter, um, he struggles to see outside of a natural way of thinking and to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. And so after Jesus has grown in um, popularity amongst uh, just people who he's been around because of the ministry he's been doing, um, we're going to see that in just a second. That's what leads us to this story. So let's read now, starting in John chapter 4. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So this just gives us some context to the story. 
And um, the result of Jesus growing in popularity and growing at odds with the religious leaders of Israel uh, meant that he made this decision to leave Judea and to Galilee. And what we want to see next is that this decision that Jesus makes to go from one location to another ends up having a very specific purpose that's really important. So now let's keep reading, Uh, starting verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria, and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So Jesus decides that they're going to go from Judea to Galilee, and the road uh, goes through Samaria. Now, we might not notice this at first glance because uh, for John's original audience, they would, have a very, um, they would have a very pointed reaction as soon as they would hear the words Samaria. And that's because of the ethnic tensions between Jewish people and Samarians. Um, so, and uh, Samaritans, uh, people from the, the um, people who kind of followed the, um, the religious traditions of Samaria. And we see that this is a very specific location, the location of Jacob's well. If we know who Jacob is, Jacob is one of the um, just fathers of Israel, one of the key figures in the nation of Israel. And if you know anything about uh, just Hebrew culture, uh, just the, the, those who have come before are of great importance um, to their faith, to their history. And so the fact that Jacob had built this well had lots of significance um, to uh, the Jewish people and also to the Samaritans. And while we don't have time to um, really dive into all of the um, all of the history that makes this a specific location, um, John calls attention to it because it's a well-known place, right? And so Jesus makes this decision. He goes through this place, and he goes to this place that's well-known. It's, it's very hot. Um, we're going to see why that's significant uh, in just a moment. And so that kind of gives us a picture of the setting here. And then here's where the interaction between the Samaritan woman and Jesus begins, starting in verse 7. And it says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So we see this is the start of a very unlikely interaction between Jesus and this woman. And it's unlikely for two reasons. Um, First, uh, I've already mentioned that there was this uh, just hostility between Jews and Samaritans um, for many years. And um, a Samaritan person was someone who um, was considered part Jewish. And if you go back to the history of God's people, if you remember back in our series of First Kings, um, in the kind of the leadership of God's people, oftentimes, time and time again, God's people would turn to idols um, and turn to worshiping other gods. Um, and the um, the area around Samaria had uh, just great um, uh, was one one great example of that. And so, um, if you go back and study the history, you will see why uh, just the animosity exists. Um, but when we, uh, the way we want to imagine it is we want to see if we can think of a lot of the racial tensions that we see, still see in our world today that are just extremely unfortunate, that are always in the news, that we have to deal with. I want us to imagine it that way because that is the challenge of, um, that is one barrier for why when this woman approaches the well, 
She doesn't think that this Jewish man would actually speak to her. She has no idea that this is Jesus, and that's going to become important by the end of this message today. Um, But that's barrier number one. Barrier number two were also the social norms of this time. And so um, it would be... uh, it would be normal, we'll talk about this in a couple verses later uh, in more detail, but it would be very normal for um, women to draw water together because there would be safety in numbers, there would be just the camaraderie amongst one another. Um, and so the fact that this woman uh, encounters Jesus at the hottest hour of the day is a time when no one uh, would normally be at the well. She's there to go unnoticed, to slip in, to draw water, and to go back home. And she has no idea that Jesus is going to ask her for some water. And so I I, want to pause here because that shows us that um, there are a lot of unique circumstances that, um, that lead up to this interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well. And I want to ask us all a question as we think about uh, this story. If this is the first time that the woman is meeting Jesus, she doesn't know who he is, and we'll see how that plays itself out towards the end of the chapter. But Jesus has made a specific decision to go from Judea to Galilee, and he's at this one specific place that would be well known that almost no one would be at in the middle of the day. It seems like none of this is happening by accident. There are, there are both social and racial uh, lines being crossed for this conversation to take place. And so all of these, all of these different factors show us that this, th- these unusual circumstances seem to be for a specific reason. And I want to ask us all this morning, let's take ourselves back to the first time that we met Jesus. Now, if you've never met him before, that's totally fine. But for many of us in this room, our stories, our testimonies have a time where we first came to know who God was. Um, I wanted to share one part of that for me. It wasn't when, I mean, I grew up going to church. um, And uh, when people ask me when I became a Christian, I have multiple answers to kind of uh, choose between, I think. Um, But one specific, uh, I think the biggest turning point for me in my spiritual spiritual life, in my relationship with God, um, came during my, it was right in the middle of my high school years um, when Greg Robertson invited us, uh, invited us all to the youth retreat. And the same youth retreat that we'll continue, hopefully get to go back to for the first time in a couple of years at the end of this summer. And I had been to the youth retreat the year before. I had enjoyed it. Um, but at the time, I was also playing competitive hockey. And the um, biggest tournaments of the year were during the summer. And I, I actually did want to go to this retreat. And um, Greg, you know, made the announcement at youth group, like, here's the forms, here's the deadline, like, I want you all to sign up. Um, a, lot, a lot of my friends were going that were in our youth group. And um, it was something that I, I wasn't opposed to going to, but it happened to be on the same weekend uh, for our national qualifying tournament. And those tournaments happened once a year. Uh, and back then, youth retreat was at the beginning of the summer, not at the end. And so the way the, um, the way the hockey tournaments worked, the qualifying would be in the spring and early summer, and the national championships would be um, in August. And our team had gone to the national championships uh, the year before. Um, but as a new player, uh, I decided not to go because it was expensive and I wasn't getting very much playing time. And my coach had told me it's probably better if you don't spend this much money to come this year and just focus on getting ready for next year. 
Well, by that time, next year had arrived, and it was time to go and compete in, the, in, in this tournament. And to this day, I still don't understand how I ended up at that youth retreat. Like if I think of 16-year-old like Dan and what was most important to him, it makes no sense to me that I would choose to somehow go to this retreat. Now, I think I remember Greg like, you know, called my house like many times. Like we didn't have text messaging back then or we didn't have like Facebook Messenger or or anything. So it's like you actually had to call someone like, you know, and he would he would like you know, call my house. And back in those days, it's like your parents would answer first. Right. And so my parents, they kind of knew Greg, but they would, they would screen all these calls and I I would have to tell him over and over again, Greg, I want to go, but I've got this tournament. And then one day I, I think he brought the forms to my house also. So it was like, okay, if that, you know, if you want to talk about unusual circumstances that lead up to like a really important, like meeting with God, like that all contributed to it. And I don't like, I feel like I have a really good memory when it comes to significant things, like not when it comes to a lot of details that tend to be important, but for things like this, I can usually remember them like, like it was yesterday. And a lot of, and for a lot of this experience, I do, but then I, to this day, I don't remember how or why I decided to go to that retreat. If you think back to when you came to know Jesus, I would bet that something came together that was out of the norm. And I think this teaches us, just as we see in this passage, that God initiates these events in our lives so that we might come to know him. That's the first thing that we see, is that God initiates relationship. Jesus was doing so by being here at Jacob's well at the hottest hour of the day and then breaking both social and cultural uh, boundaries to begin this conversation with this woman. And I think this shows us an important uh, truth about who God is, that it's always been his heart to initiate relationship with people. God has always been the initiator. He created Adam and Eve, right? And he spoke to them in the garden. And as we, we look at just the kind of the history of God's people throughout the Old Testament through just generation and generation of God's people turning away. He sends Jesus into this earth so that we might have a savior. And then when I think about my own story and how impactful this retreat was um, and how it came at the perfect time for me to realize I really wanted to follow God and not just have fun going to church, but actually intentionally follow him. None of it was by accident. And I, God doesn't just, and so that's the first truth we want to see from this really impactful story that is going to play itself out over the next several verses between Jesus and the woman at the well. Now, that's the first thing. God initiates relationship. But as we read on, what we're going to see is that God doesn't just initiate with us, but he wants to remove all the barriers of relationship for us both with us and him in our relationship, but also with other people. And we're going to talk more about the other people part next week. But let's keep reading and see what this looks like for the woman, that God is trying to break down these barriers to relationship. And so we said that uh, in verse 6, it was about noon. Imagine noon in, like, you know, if you think about the, the ancient Near East or the current Middle East, If you think about what it's like at noon, it's, you know, triple digits for sure, super hot. 
And this woman had to walk all the way there to the well. A time of day when no one would be here, right? And as we said earlier, normally to draw water, women would go in groups for safety, for um, just with their friends. And this is, and yet this is the time that the woman chose to go to the well. Why? And I think we'll see that in the next couple verses. But let's read on. Uh, It says, let's see. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into, into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now we've talked about uh, just briefly that um, Jesus speaking to her was something that would be uh, just out of, the, um, out of the norm of what she was expecting for multiple reasons. One, it's the hottest hour of the day, um, but also because of the Jewish Samaritan uh, tension um, that existed. And so, um, and so that, but if we think about the whole kind of scene and scenario, the fact that she goes at noon shows that she is going because she doesn't want anyone to see her and she doesn't want to be bothered, right? And yet there's this Jewish man who, you know, crosses these lines by asking these questions by saying, will you give me a drink? And she, she says, she kind of comments on the, just um, the state of the relationship between Jewish and Samaritan people. Like, how can you ask me for a drink? You know, our people are at odds. Like first, she's probably surprised that anyone is there at this time of day. And what that shows us is there was something about her life that made it so she wanted to go and draw water just without being noticed. To go, even though it's like gotta be really painful to go at that time of the day and to go by herself, she goes by herself for a reason because she wants to just go, go in, slip in, not be noticed, get her water and go back home. But that starts an interesting conversation when Jesus asks her for a drink. And we see that as we read on. And so in response to her saying, how can you ask me for a drink? Jesus says this. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And so this is an interesting conversation because if we go back to the start of it, um, in verse 11, the woman asks very literally, like if Jesus speaks of living water in verse 10, that comes from this gift of God and who this person is that's asking her for a drink, right? She is still thinking from a very human perspective. She says, you don't, she's basically saying, you don't have a water jar. Like where can you get this water And then, but because she's intrigued by the phrasing of living water, then she asks a question that pertains to the significance of the location that they're at. Um, She says, are you greater than our father Jacob, 
who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. If you go back to Genesis, you can read about that. And it shows at least an attempt to understand maybe a deeper significance to what Jesus might be talking about. And in verses 13 and 14, when Jesus says, everyone who drinks the the living water I have will be, uh, or everyone who drinks this water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. He says, the water I have is living water. And if you drink from it, your thirst will be quenched. And that piques the woman's curiosity because she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So on the one hand, she is thinking, like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. How can he have any water if he doesn't have his own water jar? Like, where is this water going to come from? But when he says you will never thirst again, it does pique her curiosity. And she says something interesting. She says, so I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. And that shows some insight to why she is coming here at the hottest part of the day when hopefully no one would notice. Let's keep reading in verse 16. And Jesus, uh, and Jesus says to her, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And now we understand to a much greater, to a much greater extent why she is coming to draw water in the middle of the day. For, um, for women who would go together, likely they would uh, gather in town together. They would come from their homes and go together. Um, and there was no fear of being seen amongst one another. But if this woman was going at the hottest part of the day to draw water, it's because she wants no one to notice her. Why? And Jesus asking her, go call your husband and come back, tells us exactly why. Now, there's a couple possibilities when we read this. Um, And uh, I think it's important to at least take note of them. Um, It shows that, but what Jesus is calling attention to is, uh, depending on the different possibilities, a very painful part um, of of her personal life. Now, regardless of which of these two possibilities it is, um, it either way it results in her wanting not to be seen for fear of just being shamed by other people. And so um, a couple people uh, or, or commentators have studied this um, at great length. And there's a couple, like I said, a couple possibilities of um, what her situation is. One is that she has been unfaithful in her relationships and, um, and she's just, you know, gone from marriage to marriage and then um, gotten out of them one by one, um, as we can see from, you know, Jesus saying, the fact is you have had five husbands, right? Now, the other possibility is that um, in a society that was very male-dominated, she had been left behind by one husband, and but because... Uh, having a husband to provide for you is something that um, you basically had to have at this time out of safety. It's perhaps she has gone from person to person um, because uh, through um, just from being kind of uh, left behind um, over and over again. Now, regardless of what it is, and we don't know, the passage doesn't say, this is why she goes at the hottest part of the day. Her personal life is so painful that she would rather risk the super hot temperatures to go and draw water at the hottest part of the day so that she will be unnoticed. She wants to just slip in 
So she doesn't have to deal with the shame of being seen because the man she's with at this time is, is not her husband. And there, are, there is a trail of broken relationships behind that, right? And that gives us some insight to why she is at least willing to listen to why Jesus is talking, to, to why this living water might be significant for her. When I was in 11th grade, uh, you know, for those of you uh, in high school, um, we didn't have AP language arts back then. Um, we just had the regular honors English. And uh, in that class, our teacher decided it would be heavily participation-based. A big portion of our grade was how many times you raised your hand in class to contribute to uh, the discussions that were taking place. It was a pretty hard class. And um, it was a very, uh, it, was a, it was a unique um, kind of challenge for me because I had really enjoyed English class. I had gotten easy A's in ninth and 10th grade. Um, I had even written an essay uh, that um, in 10th grade where the teacher, like he would always comment on um, who, who, he would always call out by name who scored the highest on each essay after every novel that we wrote. And on the very first one, he said that he, he, he gave me the highest grade in the class and he said that like it had been the best essay he had ever read um, from, from, you know, a reflection of that book. And so uh, needless to say, I had a pretty, you know, big head, a pretty big ego when it came to English class at this point. Um, that was only a one-time thing. It's like it never happened again, uh, as I'll start to share now. Um, but um, as time went on in this class, I realized I didn't know what to say as we would read the different passages. Like, and later what I would discover as I went off to college is that as I was starting to understand that I had some form of ADHD that affect my, affected my ability, one, to focus, but also to be able to kind of process information as I would read it or as I would hear about it. Um, it maybe it was around this time when it started to get harder. And um, our teacher had this, uh, she had this um, chart, a uh, seating chart on her podium with a plastic sleeve. And then she would just take a, um, like a, a marker. Um, and every time that we would participate in class, she would mark it down. And then, so it's like, if you walked by, you could like see all the dots. And I sat next to our high school valedictorian who was always raising his hand and I would see all those dots by his name. And then I would look at my name and there would be like, you know, one or two for the span of like a couple months. And I started to become very self-conscious of this, but it was like, I was so scared of not knowing what to say, um, or being unprepared that class just became, I wanted to slip in and go unnoticed, even though it was bringing down my grade because of uh, my lack of participation. Um, and, and I also just like really didn't know how to process what I was experiencing, having really enjoyed uh, reading and writing and doing really well at it to all of a sudden really struggling with it. And class was just so, it, was, uh, it became a very, uh, it, something filled with a lot of anxiety for me as that year went on. And every day I just wanted to slip in and... It was, the le it was the less painful alternative for me to get a lower grade because of my lack of participation than to raise my hand and try and say something that wouldn't make sense. And I share this to say, I do think many of us know what it's like to try and go unnoticed. And we think that if we just go on without addressing the broken parts of our lives, no one will notice and we can just live as peacefully as possible without shame. And yet, even though that was this woman's uh, strategy to go at the hottest part of the day. Think of how hard this must have been for her. Dragging the water jar at the hottest time of the day just so she wouldn't have to deal with the shame of others. 
And so I think many times we, we want to cover up the broken parts of our lives just because we don't want other people to notice. And yet, when Jesus asks her this question, he's calling attention to a very painful part of her life, but he's opening the possibility that she might be, that, that she might be able to experience a new way of thinking and some healing that could ultimately restore her relationships with other people. But the strategy of just wanting to go unnoticed day after day, it's not actually going to result in any change. And if there, for the painful areas of, of our lives, if we're just going by hoping, oh, I just, you know, I'm just going to kind of cover this up and I hope no one will notice, then we don't experience the type of relationship that God wants us to, of what it looks like to experience life in a spiritual family. And the fact that Jesus would ask her straight out, like, go and call your husband and come back, knowing her past. It shows us that Jesus doesn't disregard our, our pain or our sin or the broken parts of our past, but that he does address it gently and lovingly. Why? So that we might be able to heal and be restored to relationship. And how does he do this for this woman? And that brings us uh, to the last part of this passage. So the first thing that we saw was that Jesus was the initiator of this relationship with this woman. And then we see here that God, Jesus calls attention to the pain that is going on in this woman's life so that she can be able to experience what happens next. Let's keep reading in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. All right. Now, there's a lot to unpack here that I'm not going to have time to kind of go through uh, super carefully. I encourage you to read this on your own um, if you get a chance, because it's such a powerful um, passage. And, um, but uh, when, when the woman is called on her personal life, she, start, she says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. She understands that there is something about Jesus that means he knows all about her past, even though she's never met him before this moment, which I dare say is true of all of us when we think about the ways that we've come to know Jesus as well. And she does know a little bit about the significance of the place that they're at and the history of worshiping and the importance of worship. And Jesus says in verse 21, he says, believe me, a time is coming when the location of where you worship will not matter. Why? And it's because of the truth that Jesus starts to explain to her. In verse 23, Jesus says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And when Jesus is saying that the way of worship is changing, we'll see why in just a moment. 
He is saying a true worshiper worships in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Now in verse 24, we see how, uh, we see how this question gets answered. And Jesus says, God is spirit. And what that means is he's trying to show that it's not about a location of where you worship. He is showing that worship is not about the location, even though it's been about location for a long period of time. And something that's been debated between, between the Jews and the Samaritans, between the religious leaders and people they were leading, it's something that's been very significant. But when he says God is spirit, a spirit is something that is unseen. A spirit is something that can't be defined just by human sight or human touch. And what that shows is it's try, Jesus is trying to show that he is the Son of God, that he's the Lord of the universe, and that he must be worshipped accordingly. And that's the important part when he says to worship in spirit and in truth. When we read this passage, it is unmistakable that worshiping in spirit and in truth is important. But what does he mean by that? And we, I, I think when in studying this, and I, I, you know, I glossed over this when I preached on this on New Year's because um, it's a really deep concept. I think I have a better handle on what it means that, uh, to worship in spirit when he says God is spirit, speaking of the um, eternal, uh, just the eternal nature of who God is. But what is this truth part? And I think that comes from the last thing that Jesus says here. And the woman responds to this by saying, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And when we think about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, if God is spirit, the supernatural questions of our world will be dealt with. But by whom? And that's where it's important that Jesus reveals his identity to this woman. Now, if you read the Gospels, you see time and time again where Jesus warns people not to say anything about his identity. But to this woman, he is unmistakably, unmistaken, unmistakably saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And the one who you speak of that will make everything right I am here right now. And I think this is so powerful because for a woman who has developed a whole strategy of not wanting to be seen, she is able to meet the Messiah face to face. And Jesus, when he talks about the importance of worshiping in spirit and in truth, he is saying in verse 23, those who worship in spirit and truth are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And he is seeking that from this woman. It didn't matter her past. It didn't matter that she had devised a strategy um, that was based off of avoiding shame 24-7. But he's desiring that she would turn and worship him. And I think that's so powerful because it shows us that first God initiates. And then it shows us that God God uh, calls attention to our pain, not just because he wants to rub it in, but because he wants, to, uh, he wants us to be able to have the opportunity to heal. And then finally, God is inviting worship. And that's what Jesus is inviting her to do by revealing that he is the Messiah. And so for us then, if we, like this woman, often devise strategies to not be noticed in hopes that Maybe the painful parts of my life, I can just continue to slide by and no one will notice and I can just, you know, 
how, what does that, how does that help our relationships with one another? And when we truly know the God of this universe, the one who shows so much intentionality and also compassion for this woman, given her situation, you can see why she would want to turn and worship him in spirit and in truth. And for us, if we are struggling with loneliness or if we're struggling with just kind of sliding, sliding by and hoping that no one will notice uh, what's going on in our lives, that we can actually bring these things before him and worship him and that our lives can be changed. I remember having a conversation with my teacher who gave me a, I don't remember exactly what grade it was, but it was, uh, it was the first non-A I had gotten in an English class um, because I didn't participate because of how self-conscious I was. And I remember uh, just going to her at the end of the school year um, because I was debating whether to take AP literature or not. And um, you know how sometimes teachers might want to be encouraging and they might say like, oh yeah, I think, you know, uh, maybe, maybe it's up to you. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. She was adamant. She said, Dan, take regular English. And I think she had understood that I had really struggled in her class. And there was no judgment in her saying that. And I actually, I think I owe her uh, just a lot of gratitude in not uh, struggling through a class that would have been really hard for me during my senior year. And, um, but all that to say, what I felt like in that moment was she recognized how hard that struggle was for me. And there was no judgment in giving me kind of uh, just this, um, this advice for the following year. And in that moment, I felt like she at least had some understanding of what it meant that she saw my struggle And that it didn't mean that she thought any less of me, um, but that she could continue guiding me for, you know, for the rest of my high school time. And that she could be a good influence on me, even though I hadn't done very well in her class. And when I think about the ways that Jesus uh, pointedly um, gets into the painful parts of our lives and calls attention to them, it is an opportunity for us to turn to him and see how we have this relationship with him. It doesn't mean that Um, It doesn't mean that uh, things are necessarily easy, but what we're going to see very remarkably is how different this woman's life is as a result of meeting Jesus and having him inviting her to worship. It's really amazing, and we're going to read about that in the latter half of chapter four next week. And so for all of us who might just uh, just have some struggle in our human relationships because of the broken parts of our lives, I pray that we would see this amazing invitation that Jesus gives to this woman, regardless of her past, that he went out of his way to initiate. I pray that we would be thankful for the ways that God has done that for us. And if you're someone who doesn't know who he is, perhaps by reading this passage today, God is trying to call attention to you how much he values you, how he wants to be involved in the painful areas of our lives so that we might be able to turn and worship him and how we might experience relationship, uh, how we might be able to experience relationship with him, uh, the triune God as we've been talking about, um, and how, but also how this might lead to an amazing breakthrough in our relationships with others. And so that's what we're going to see when we read the next uh, section next week. But in, in this interaction between her and Jesus, this woman has the beginnings of the opportunity to experience this relationship with Jesus. 
Now, it's really important to see that God is the one who's the initiator. He's the one who calls attention to this pain, and he also invites this worship. Um, It's important to see that just because uh, it shows us that God does that for us as well. But for this woman, the thing we have to give her credit for is though she went to this well not wanting to speak to anyone, she leaves extremely thankful that she had this conversation with Jesus. And we're going to see why next week. But I hope that we can all see that that is the type of relationship that we've been talking about. How there are many things that make it hard for us to have a relationship with God and then in turn to have a relationship with others. And yet, by having the opportunity to worship God and experience Him for who He is, then the vision of our church, which is that broken and captive people will be healed and set free in Christ Jesus, is something that we can experience in our lives. And it'll be life-changing. I'm really excited to be able to share that second part of the passage because I think it's absolutely incredible. If you want to read ahead, read the rest of chapter four. And I pray to God that I'll be able to share that message with you all in person next week. But this is, I'm, I'm regardless of the setting, I'm really thankful that we could consider what it means, that God has initiated a relationship with us, that he calls attention to our pain so that we might be able to be healed and then he gives us the opportunity to worship him. And so in a moment, we're going to be taking communion um, that Daniel will be leading. Um, but I pray that as we think about um, what communion is, we'll be able to see that it's, it reminds us of this relationship that we have with God. Because he's, because he's come first, because he's the great uh, Savior and Messiah who wants to heal us and set us free. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And God, just as we sang, we thank you for who you are. You are our provider. You are the creator of this world. And God, you, both now and even furthermore, when when your son Jesus comes back one day, you do and you will reign in victory. And God, though there are very painful parts of our lives that we try to cover up and pretend like no one notices, God, I thank you that regardless of anything that we've been through, that you invite us to worship you. And God, that we can experience that because of your great love for us. Lord, I pray that we, like this woman, would have our lives changed from the relationship that we now have with you. And God, for those who do not have a relationship with you, I pray, Lord, um, that this uh, seeing this story would pique some curiosity of what it means that there is living water, what it means that we don't have to have a life that's just governed by our shame or our fears. But God, that we can be healed and set free because you are that good and you are that type of God who loves us and wants to know us. So God, we thank you for this time. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.